So I was talking to a friend of mine a few years ago that I went to high school with. And uh, she was sharing with me that she was really struggling because her mother, who was an active leader in a church, had been treated just mercilessly by other leaders in the church. And they were being very, very unkind to her and doing mean things to her and not treating her the way that we would think a Christian should act. And I know, unfortunately, this is all too common. I think it was Gandhi who once said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And that was a huge indictment. He was attracted to the Jesus of Scripture, but the people who were supposedly supposed to be showing Jesus were not doing so. So my friend was just struggling with with these feelings of, of anger and hurt and resentment. And to make matters worse, the leaders who were leading the leaders were not stepping in to try to help the situation. And so my friend, she wanted to know, as she was asking me as a pastor, how should I relate to the church? Should I just give up on the church? Should I try to soldier through and, you know, grip my teeth and and fight through? Or, Or might there be a place for me to pull away from the church? You see, she too was attracted to Jesus, but she was not attracted to those who were claiming to live in Jesus' name. This is a common problem, isn't it? Maybe you yourself have experienced that. You yourself have experienced the pain and the hurt and the the ostracism and the guilt and the shame that is so often accompanied by what we call Christianity. When people are proclaiming the name of Jesus, so often we aren't living the name of Jesus. It reminds me of a quote that I came across again a few years ago. It's in this book that was very controversial when it came out. It was called Love Wins, and it was by an author by the name of Rob Bell. And uh, he had this very thought-provoking question that he put in that book. He said, some Christians believe and often repeat that all that matters is whether or not a person is going to heaven. And he wonders, is that the message? Is that, is that really the message? Is, what, is that what life is about, going somewhere else? Like, that's the whole goal. Like, all we're trying to do is just figure out how to get there. We don't really care about what goes on here, but how do we get there? Is that what the Christian message is, Rob Bell asks. And he says, if that's the gospel, the good news, if what Jesus does is get people somewhere else, then the central message of the Christian faith has very little to do with this life other than getting what you need for the next one. He says, which of course raises the question, check this out, is that the best that God can do? Like, is that, is that all God's capable of doing is getting us somewhere else? Underlying the question that Rob Bell asks is, shouldn't there be some sort of difference that Christianity makes right here, right now? 
Shouldn't we be able to look and see that message in action? You know, we've been going over the last five weeks. This is now the fifth and final teaching on this question of Adventism in a nutshell. What is the crux? What is the, what is the center of what we would call Seventh-day Adventist teaching and theology and doctrine? And if you haven't noticed by now, at the center, and we, I, I shared this very explicitly right at the beginning, at the center of Adventist teaching when you peel back all the layers, when you, when you pull it all back, when you, when you focus on the crux, the gist, the very center of that message, is this idea that God is love. That at the heart of the Bible, at the heart of what we proclaim as Seventh-day Adventists, I think Camille's probably sitting over there because she needs to get to the door quickly towards the end. So everyone's looking at her. That's just what she's doing, Okay. <laughs> She's, she's, she's just a loner. As you know, Camille is not. No, but at the heart, at the heart of Seventh-day Adventist teaching is the message that God is love. And what God is seeking to do is to help us understand more deeply that truth. And as we, as we look in Scripture, as we, as we see like a prism all the many different facets of God's love, we understand that God is seeking to draw us into an experience where we encounter his love to the fullest degree that we are able to encounter it. Well, today as we wrap things up, as we, as we bring this little series of teachings to a close, we have a very interesting perspective that we're going to look at today. And it's all launching from a very fascinating story or a parable that Jesus shares, and it's actually, according to the book of Matthew, it is actually the very last teaching that he shares before he goes to the cross. So if you were trying to determine the importance of this message, I would venture to say that you would conclude that this is a very important message, right? If I had one last thing to share with you, and I said, guys, I'm leaving I actually am leaving, but that's not what I'm talking about. If I said, guys, I'm retiring, and I'm never going to be your pastor again, you would conclude that the very last thing I shared was extremely important, wasn't it? You would, you would make that conclusion. So this, this message that Jesus shares is the very last teaching that he shares before he goes and dies on the cross in Cal- at Calvary. Now, what's fascinating is, and some people don't recognize this, but what's fascinating is the whole introduction to this little teaching, although it comes like many verses before, it comes a few chapters before, the whole introduction to this this teaching was the disciples, they're sitting and they're overlooking Jerusalem, and Jesus says, you know what, there's going to come a day where there's not going to be one stone left unturned with the temple down there. And they're like, are you kidding me? You see, the temple was their whole existence. All of life revolved around the temple. And so Jesus comes to them and says, there's going to come a time where this temple's not going to be standing anymore. And they are dumbfounded. It would be like somebody coming up to us today and saying, you know, there's going to come a day when the White House is going to be leveled. There'll be no more White House. There'll be no more Capitol building. And we would just be like, man, the end of the world must be coming. And so that's actually what the disciples ask Jesus. They say, Jesus, tell us, 
How will we know when this is about to happen? How will we know not only when the temple is going to be destroyed, but they actually ask him, how will we know when the end of the age is about to take place? And so what they are fundamentally asking is, how do we know when the end times are here? That's what they're asking. Because in their mind, of course, the temple was life. And if it's going to be destroyed, it's like the end days are here. And so Jesus goes on to share a number of these, what some have labeled, the signs of the times. And he goes on to explain that there will be many things that happen, many, many crazy events that take place. One of the things he says will happen is that the love of many will actually grow cold. Like, there's going to come a day when fewer and fewer people are experiencing and giving love. But notice the very last thing he shares. Check this out. Very fascinating. Jesus wraps up the whole thing by putting it in these terms. Again, this is the last thing he teaches. He says, when he finally arrives, that is, he's talking about God, of course. When he finally arrives, blazing in beauty and all his angels with him, the Son of Man will take his place, talking about himself, on his glorious throne, then all the nations will be arranged before him, and he will sort the people out. He's going to sort them out. Much as a shepherd sorts out sheep and goats, putting sheep to his right and goats to his left. So check this out. Jesus is saying, he's saying, look, there's going to come a time when God returns and he's going to separate people into two groups. Because fundamentally, that's what there is in this world and in this universe. There are people who are either on one side or the other side. There are people who are either sheep or they're goats. There's no third group, is what he's saying. Now, I know that sounds very exclusive and binary, but that's what, that's what Jesus says. Now, he goes on to explain, and some of you may already know this story, so you know where he's going with it, but he goes on to explain how he's going to separate the two groups. And he says, of course, it is based purely on theological commitment. That's what he goes on to explain. He says, on one side, the sheep will be those who know all the right teaching. And on the other side will be those who don't know that teaching. That's what he says, of course, right? Well, let's keep reading. He says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Enter you who are blessed by my father. Take what's coming to you in this kingdom. It's been ready for you since the world's foundation. And here's why. Here's why you're going to be on that side. He says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was homeless, and you gave me a room. I was shivering, and you gave me clothes. I was sick, and you stopped to visit. I was in prison, and you came to me. This is how Jesus determines those who are the sheep. This is how Jesus determines those who are on the right. It's because they are living out the principles of his love. They have embraced his grace to such a degree that they are living out his grace. Now check this out. What do they say? Then those sheep are going to say, Master, what are are you talking about? What are you you talking about? When did we ever see you hungry and feed you? When did we ever see you thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we ever see you sick or in prison and come to you? Then the king will say, I'm telling you the solemn truth. Whenever you did one of these things to someone or overlooked, who is overlooked or ignored, 
that was me. You did it to me. Now, you and I, no doubt, this is, this is a great trick that God plays, if I can put it in those terms. You and I, no doubt, if God walked into this room, like, and we knew it was God, what do you think we would be doing? If, I was going to say the president, but that's maybe not a good example. If someone of high dignity, if Queen Elizabeth, well, that's a safe person, right? If Queen Elizabeth walked into this room, you and I would bow down. We would say, please, have a, have a chair. Can we get you some tea? Obviously, she would love tea because she's English. But, but we, would, we would just absolutely be doing all that we could to make her feel welcome, wouldn't we? And yet Jesus says, you know what? It's not the way you treat the greatest of these. It's how you treat the least of these. Because you're actually doing it to me, for me. The way I kind of relate to this is when you do something for my child, it's as though you're doing it for me. And my heart gets happy and I I feel excited that you would take interest and you would care for them and you would be kind to them. It's as though you're doing it for me. And Jesus said on the most fundamental, basic level, this is when you boil it all down, when we're looking out and God is looking for his people, he is looking for those who are reaching out and treating the least of these with love, respect, and grace. Now, Of course, he has something to say to the goats as well. He says, he will turn to the goats, the ones on his left, and say, get out, worthless goats. You're good for nothing but the fires of hell. That sounds pretty serious. The fires of hell. Now, interestingly, later on in that book by Rob Bell, he says, you know, I'm puzzled by people who, who, who are scandalized by the question of God's justice in hell. He said, If you don't think hell exists, then try observing somebody who's being hurt to an infinite degree. Somebody who is being abused and manipulated, he's like, don't tell me hell doesn't exist. We would would be very upset if there was not a God of justice. If there's there's things going on that, that are not in accordance with our very fundamental understanding of what it means to be love. We want somebody who's going to step in and say, that's not appropriate. We want somebody to step in and say, no more. And so this is what God is, is talking about when he's talking about those fires of hell. Now notice what he goes on to say, of course, and why? Because I was hungry and you gave me no meal. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was homeless and you gave me no bed. I was shivering and you gave me no clothes, sick and in prison, and you never visited. Then those goats are going to say, Master, what are you talking about? When did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or homeless or shivering or sick or in prison and didn't help? Of course we would have helped you if we had known you were the one there. Of course we would have pulled out all the, you know, we would have, we would have done everything we could have to make you feel welcome. And Jesus, again, what does he say? He said, he will answer them, I'm telling the solemn truth, whenever you failed to do one of these things to someone who was being overlooked or ignored, that was me, you failed to do it to me. So check this out. Again, at the most fundamental level, as we are are exploring what it means that God is love, as we understand that God's love captivates our hearts, it will transform us so that we become the image bearers, the full image bearers of God, and we share that love with others. There's a quote I love 
these quotes from one of our early Adventist pioneers. It's from this book called The Desire of Ages. Now, some of you uh, may have read this writer before, and you may not have seen this side of this writer, but notice what this author, her name is Ellen White, she says, oh, I forget the last part, then those goats will be herded to their eternal doom, but the sheep to their eternal reward. But check this out from this book, Desire of Ages. When the nations are gathered before him, there will be but two classes. How many classes? Two classes, just two. There will be but two classes, and their eternal destiny will be determined by what they have done or have neglected to do for him in the person of the poor and suffering. That's it. That's it. The author goes on to say, those whom Christ commends in the judgment may, known, may have known little of what? Theology. theology. How many of you know a lot about theology? Just me? I have a degree in it. Isn't that good? You don't have to have a, a, a PhD in theology. She offers, they may not know, have known little of theology, but they have cherished his principles. Through the influence of the divine spirit, they have been a blessing to those about them. Now, so what we're getting at here, and if we were to unpack and we were to jump into the last book of the Bible, Seventh-day Adventists, we have historically talked a lot about that last book of the Bible called the book of Revelation. And so to, to not jump into the deep end, but to just put it in simple terms, the book of Revelation paints a picture of this very scenario that in the last days, there will just be two classes of people. There will just be two groups of people. And how we'll know who's who is those who are living by the principles of God's love. They may not have all the correct theology. They may not have all the doctrines figured out to a T. Now, I want to make sure you understand, and many of you already know me well enough to know, that I think it's really important and really awesome the more that we can know about God, the more that we can understand the truth about him, because ultimately, our ceiling and our capacity to love will be based upon our capacity to know and to understand and to love God. And so if, if, if we're living out the principles of God's love, but we don't really know much about God's love, we'll be able to, to love others pretty well. But the more we know of God, the better we'll be able to love. So what, what, what the book of Revelation point, paints is these two opposing sides. One, it calls Babylon. Now, I was talking just yesterday with a friend a new friend of mine, and he's trying to get away from, what I'd say, he's trying to get out of Babylon. He's actually literally moved to Maine. And you can't be in Babylon when you live in Maine, right? <laughs> but he, he's moved to Maine because he had spent his whole career in the corporate world. And he's trying to get away from all the consumerism. He's trying to get away from all the materialism. And he's trying to get away from the dog-eat-dog world and, and, the, and the world that says, if I can only get more money, if I can only get more possessions, if I can only get to this place in life, and he say, I just want to leave it all behind. And so that is, at the core, an attempt to get out of Babylon. And what God is seeking to have is a people who again are, are so enveloped in God's love, so changed by his love, that we refuse to engage in the principles of Babylon. 
And the principles of Babylon, as we've sort of hinted at throughout this little series, the principles of Babylon are the principles of self-centeredness, of pride, of ego, of control, of manipulation, of guilt, of shame, of not respecting the freedom of others, of not respecting the boundaries of others, of living without boundaries so that you think whatever that other person has is yours. And you can just exploit them however you want. But scripture paints another picture that there will be this other group that is living by the principles of God's love. And in Revelation 14, all Revelation is doing is explaining the characteristic in different words of what those people in Matthew 25 are experiencing. John, the person who writes this book, says, Then I saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. He's seeing a vision of God's people. And with him were 144,000. Now, that is just, I want to assure you, that is a symbolic number. The book of Revelation is full of symbolism. There's not literally just 144,000 people. Sometimes you wonder if there's even that many, though, right? So there's 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. That symbolizes that when you have someone's name on, their, on your forehead, you belong to them. You have entered into the fullness of belonging to that person. You have been transformed by that person. God's love, his character is in your forehead. Does that mean that these people are absolutely perfect and they never make a mistake? That's not what it means. It simply means that they are growing day by day more and more into God's image of love. And so they have his name on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of a mighty ocean waves or the rolling of loud thunder. It was like the sound of many harpists playing together. This is a huge group. This great choir, isn't that a beautiful image? Have you ever heard a really good choir? How beautiful it is. This great choir. A couple of chapters before, describing the same group, it calls them a great multitude which no man could number. There's going to be so many. And I'm sure you and I will be surprised when we see who's a part of that group. And we'll say, wow, I never knew that that person was a child of God. And yet they were living by his principles. They were living by his love. This great choir sang a wonderful new song in front of the throne of God and before the four living beings and the 24 elders. That's another part of Revelation that it's alluding back to. And he says, no one could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. They have, been kept, they have kept themselves as pure as virgins, following the Lamb wherever he goes. They have been purchased from among the people on earth as a special offering to God and to the Lamb. They have told no lies. They are without blame. He's thinking to myself, well, that excludes me, right? That excludes me. And yet these are people not, again, who are perfect, but who are wanting to be God's child, who are wanting to experience his love, who are wanting to experience... The, the bliss and the joy of eternal fellowship with God. And then later on, a few verses later, after it goes on to explain the principles of Babylon, it goes on in the kind of the parting shot of this group of people says, meanwhile, the saints, this group, they stand passionately patient, patiently, passionately patient, keeping God's commands, staying faithful to Jesus. So here's this group. They have, they have God's character. They have, they have God's love that has 
has so changed their hearts that they, they share it with others, that they live it out towards others. And they are experiencing God's commandments, which sometimes we limit those to those ten commandments. And we say, okay, check, 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 got these. Yep, I, I, I'm kind to my parents. I, I don't kill people. I don't, I don't you know, bear false witness. I keep the Sabbath. Yep, got all those. Good, yep. But God's commands, when we understand, when the, when the scribe came up to Jesus and said, what's the greatest command? And what did he say? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. Is that on all the law and the prophets, these two things hang. And so what Jesus is explaining, what he's sharing is when, when God's love becomes ingrained and, and, and placed down in the depths of our hearts, we live out those principles of love. The, the law of God, the commandments of God, are summed up in loving him and loving others. Now, does that mean that we don't keep those Ten Commandments? No, it simply means that those are a part of, we, we do more than that, but we don't do less than that. And so as we're living by the principles of God's love, we share it with others. There was a, a story that, that has, uh, perhaps some of you have heard before, but it's told by a somewhat well-known Christian pastor. Uh, his name is Tony Campolo. Anybody ever heard of him? And some of you probably heard the story before, but I just thought it was a perfect way to illustrate the, the power of God's people who are living by this principle of love. A number of years ago, uh, Campolo was visiting Hawaii. Any of you want to be there right now? <laughs> He's visiting Hawaii, and uh, he had just arrived, and it was late one night, and he had jet lag, and he couldn't sleep in his hotel room. And so he decided that he would uh, try to make something of his time. And he woke up and saw that there was a diner right next door to where he was staying. And so he stumbled over there at 3 a.m. And there was, you know, a, a gentleman that was standing behind the counter. You know, it was a greasy spoon type of place. And, you know, Campola was trying to make sense of what was going on. And finally said, well, give me a donut. And so the... The, the man behind the counter got him a donut, and they were kind of just chatting a little bit. And within a few minutes, all of a sudden, in walks a group of eight prostitutes. And they just sit down right next to Tony Campolo. And uh, they start talking about that night's tricks and, you know, this thing and that thing. And he started to get a little uncomfortable, and he's like, okay, you know, I think I'm going to try to make an exit as quickly as I can. But just before he, he left... He overheard one of the ladies saying to the other lady, he said, you know, tomorrow is going to be my 39th birthday. And the other lady who she was talking to said, oh, you know, what do you want us to do? Throw you a party? Why are you telling us that? And she says, hey, don't, don't give me a hard time. I'm just saying it's my birthday. And she said, I've actually never before ever had a birthday party. And so as Campolo was sitting there, the wheels started turning. And he decided to, to wait out their departure. And so a few minutes later, the group of ladies left. And he, uh, he went and looked at the, the, the clerk and the man behind the counter. And he says, I got an idea. He said, what's that lady's name that was just in here? Well, that's Agnes. And he said, why don't we throw Agnes a birthday party? The guy was just 
kind of confused, and he said, well, what, do you, what do you mean throw our birthday party? Let's throw our birthday party. Do they come in here every night? Every night, faithfully, 3.30 in the morning. And so Campolo got this great idea. He's like, I'll go get a cake. And uh, the guy said, no, 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 no. no. We, we would be you know, insulted if you got a cake. We'll make the cake, my wife and I, who was standing behind the, you know, in the kitchen. And so that's what he started to do. Campolo started planning and plotting and Sure enough, the next night he comes in at 3 a.m. and he starts decorating the place from wall to wall. You know, streamers and banners and a big sign that said, Happy Birthday, Agnes. And sure enough, at 3.30, not only does Agnes walk in, but as Campolo says, basically every prostitute in Honolulu stepped in. The word had gotten out. The people who owned the restaurant told that, that they were... They were going to have this birthday party. And so in walks walks Agnes, and she just looks up, and they start singing happy birthday to her, and she just starts bawling her eyes out. And uh, they have a few celebrations, and a few minutes later, they bring the cake, and her eyes get huge. She's just looking at that cake. And they are just about to cut the cake. And she says, oh, no, no, don't, don't, don't cut it, don't cut it, don't cut it. I just want to look at it. I just want to look at it. And so she just looks down at it, and she's, again, she's crying, and then she, she looks up, and she has this strange request. And she says, can I actually take this cake back to my apartment? I just want to save it. I just want, I just want to savor the moment. So they're all, they're all miffed by what, She's asked, and the guy behind the counter says, sure, it's your cake. Do whatever you want. You know, we're not going to. And so she immediately, right then and there, grabs the cake, and she just exits, and she's gone. And here is Tony Campolo sitting in this restaurant with, like, a couple dozen prostitutes, and he doesn't know what to do. (laughs) And so finally, for some reason, he just says, let's pray. And so with all the, the, the grace and the humility that he can, he, he prays, and he prays this beautiful prayer for Agnes, that she would come to experience God's love, and that she would someday experience all the fullness of God's love. And he says amen, and there's tears, you know, that are streaming down the various ladies' cheeks. And the man behind the counter He's kind of a little agitated. And he says, I didn't know you were a preacher. (laughs) And he says, what kind of church do you belong to anyway? And just, Campolo says, the Spirit of God spoke to him. He said, he, he didn't know where it came from, but he said, the kind of church I belong to is a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. The man behind the counter, he says, that church doesn't exist. That, there's no church like that. He said, because if there was a church like that, I would go to it. You know, I believe, I believe, unlike my friend there at the beginning, I believe that, that God is bringing together, he is bringing together people who truly want to live by his love. 
who want to live by the principles of non-coercive, self-giving love. That as we look at the cross, as we understand the grace, the, the infinite grace of God, who has poured out all of heaven for us in the gift of Jesus, that there, will, there, there is a group that's coming together. And I'm not saying it's the Seventh-day Adventist church. I'm not saying it's our local church. I'm saying that I hope that our local Seventh-day Adventist church will join up with God in being his missionary people who go out and at 3.30 in the morning do those things for the least of these. There's a quote that I posted on Facebook this week. I read it many years ago. That I, I, just, I came across it again this week. It's from a Jewish rabbi named Abraham Heschel. He says, It is customary to blame secular science and anti-religious philosophy for the eclipse of religion in modern society. It would be more honest to blame religion for its own defeats. Religion declined not because it was refuted, but because it became irrelevant, dull, oppressive, insipid. When faith is completely replaced by creed, worship by discipline, love by habit, when the crisis of today is ignored because of the splendor of the past, when faith becomes an heirloom rather than a living fountain, when religion speaks only in the name of authority rather then with the voice of compassion, its message becomes meaningless. So, there's two groups. There's two groups. There's the sheep, there's the goats. I want to be a part of a church that has sheep. Now, if you're a goat, we're still going to love you. Amen? (laughs) All of us have a little bit of goat in us. But I, I just wonder, do you, do you want to be a part of that type of movement, that type of community that is seeking to live by those principles of God's love, that joins up with God in his mission? So that might look like you literally saying, I want to commit to being a part of a group like this congregation. Are we, are we perfect? No, we're not perfect. Trust me, we're not perfect. But you may literally say, you know, I want to be a part of that group. Whatever it takes, I want to be, because we're a lot more effective together than by ourselves. And so as we come together and as we seek to live out the principles of God's self-sacrificing love, we can change the world by his grace. So that's what, that's what, that's what, Adventism, I believe, has been called to do is to be this prophetic movement that proclaims and lives out his law of love. And at its best, we do that. And by his grace, we will further experience that. So, Jonathan, Amanda, lead us as we close with a song that brings us comfort 